We're starting a new series today uh, called Hope Dreams Big. And our series is really uh, focusing on two major scriptures and a concept that's encapsulated in these two scriptures. They're gonna be up on the screen here. It's, I believe, the next slide from Psalms and from Hebrews. And the first one from Psalms reads like this. You don't have to turn there. It's on the screen now. I'll, I'll say it out loud. But when I behold the heavens and the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in a place... What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you even care for him? You've made him a little lower than heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him the rule over the works of your hands and you've, you've set everything under his feet. Then in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews references this and he actually says in verse six, somewhere it's written, so he's reflecting back to what he's learned. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels. We'll talk about that word in a second, why it's different. You've crowned him with glory and honor and you've placed everything under his feet. This scripture is literally speaking to our divine nature. It's literally speaking to how God has created us, that we have a sense of dignity and worth. That word glory and honor should be translated in our modern day vernacular, dignity and worth. That we are created with a sense of purpose and being that God created us a little bit lower. The Bible says there uh, in one instance, and then angels, in the other instance, heavenly beings. It's really the Hebrew word, B'nai Elohim, which is talking about the God council, that there is in heaven a council that arranges the affairs of eternity. It's the Godhead along with the archangels that were placed just a little bit lower than their authority. And that God on planet earth has given us all authority and that he's placed everything in creation under our feet. This is how God sees us. The psalmist writing it looked up into the night sky, saw the stars in their sockets and wondered about the creator of the heavens and the earth. What is man? What is humanity that you even think about us? The son of man that you care for us. Yet you've crowned us with glory and honor. That you've given us, given us placement of glory and honor, dignity and worth. That you have a sense of value and worth. Regardless of what you feel like today, regardless of what, who's told you what, Maybe you've told you are worthless. Maybe you've been told you'll never amount to anything. Maybe you've been told that the, you, they wish you were never born. Maybe some word has been given out over your life that is, well, it's despicable. It's not true. It's not honest. Because the Bible says that you're born with dignity and worth. It's a characteristic that is intrinsic to all human persons. Yet most of us don't live in that. We don't know how to treat something until we understand its value. Kevin has a beautiful guitar up here. If I gave this to my soon-to-be four-year-old son, I'm sure he would love to play it. He loves guitars. I'm sure he would pluck away at the strings, but eventually he'd cover it in Mickey Mouse or Star Wars tattoos, or tattoos, uh, stickers. Tattoos, that'd be even weirder if he had a tattoo gun, right? My four-year-old, that'd be weird. Uh, but he'd cover it in something fun, something sticky. I'm sure he'd get the, the snack fingers going, you know, the Cheeto fingers and the, the, the gummy fingers, and it'd be all sticky and gross over time because he doesn't know how to treat an instrument that's worth thousands of dollars. In our own life, we have a sense of value, honor, dignity, and worth, and we don't know how to treat ourselves or how we should be treated many times because we don't know the value that we have. We're not sure of the value that we have. We're going to talk about an idea of values exchange here in our in our sermon today. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Mark chapter 10. We're gonna, need, we're gonna read verse 10, or I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 17, all the way through verse 34. 
Now, if you have your Bible, uh, you might see the heading there about a rich young ruler. You might understand the story as a story about a rich young ruler. And most folks, when they read the story, focus on money and it has literally nothing to do or very little to do with money. So we'll start with verse 17. As he was starting on his way, a man ran up, knelt down in front of him. Jesus was starting on his way and asked him, good rabbi, what should I do to obtain eternal life? Go ahead and underline eternal life. We'll get there in a minute, it's important. Jesus said to him, why are you calling me good? No one's good except for God who is in heaven. And if you're a teenager, I forgot to dismiss you. Go ahead and go on to your class. You're, you're definitely free to go. So no one's good except for God who is in heaven. Um, <clears throat> Jesus said to him, you know the law, you know the mitzvot. Don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal don't give false witness or false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. The man said to him, Rabbi, I've kept all of these since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and he had love for him. And he said to him, you're missing something. You're missing one thing. Go and sell, underline go and sell. Everything that you own, give it to the poor and you'll have riches in heaven. Underline riches in heaven. Then come follow me. Come follow me. He was shocked by these words. This young man was shocked because he had, he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked around him and said to his disciples, how hard is it going to be for people of great wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished by these words. Jesus looked at them and said, my friends, how hard is it gonna be for anyone to get into the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They were utterly amazed at what he said, his disciples then who can be saved, they asked. And Jesus said to them, with God or with, with man, it's impossible. With, with God, all things are possible. Then Peter spoke up and he began to say to him, look, we have left everything. We have left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, yes, I tell you the truth. If anyone has left houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, field for my sake or for the sake of the good news, the gospel, he will receive 100 times over now in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecution and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and many who are last will be first. And they were going up on a road to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and, the follower, and those following were afraid. So again, the 12, along with him, he began to talk to them about what was about to happen. We're gonna go up to Jerusalem, Jesus said, and the son of man will be handed over and they will sentence him to death. They will turn him over uh, to the Gentiles and they will jeer at him and they'll spit on him and they will beat him and they will kill him. But after three days, he'll rise again. So this is our story for today. This is a story I wanna center on. It's a story about worth, it's a story about value. It's a story about exchange. Most of us look at this story and we see a young man who comes to Jesus and he asks the quintessential question. He actually asks the question that we see posed in Psalms and we see posed in Hebrews. What is man that you're mindful of him? God, how do I get eternal life? This was a common question amongst the Jews. 
They were trying to figure out a way to secure eternity, a life with God, a fellowshipping with God, a place where uh, the reconciliation would happen between God and humanity. A broken, frail humanity would somehow find their way back up to a place where they could actually be in conversation with God again. All Jewish people were looking for this. In fact, they were marking a day when the Messiah would come and he would break open the door and he would allow for this relationship to be reciprocal. So this good Jew, this good Jewish man, looks to Jesus, falls at his feet. First thing he says, it's very interesting. He says, he poses the question this way. Good teacher, what good things must I do to enter heaven? Now Jesus is a little astonished by what he said because as a good Jew, he knew that you don't call anyone good except for God. You don't ask for anything good outside of God. That all things that are good have to come from God. So he was marking this man and marking his question and asking, are you... Are you honestly asking about my divine nature? I'm gonna probe a little bit and see how far this rabbit hole goes. So Jesus starts down the rabbit hole and he starts to answer the man's questions. Good teacher, what must I do? What good things must I do to inherit eternal life or to gain eternal life? Jesus answers in four parts. First, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God. So let's see how far you really wanna go with this line of questioning. The second thing he says, you know what the teachers have told you to do. You know what our traditions are. They're the mitzvah. Do the mitzvah. Do the, do the religious things that you're told to do. In one reading of this story, because the story is told three times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In one reading of this story, the man asks him, teacher, what of the commandments am I supposed to keep? Jesus lines them out. He gives them a few because there were 613 commandments. The gentleman answers Jesus and says, good, because I've already accomplished all of those things. Now you could argue whether or not this man was a liar and he was boastful or whether or not he was being honest and true, but the likelihood is he was being honest and true to his tradition. And Jesus says, okay, you've kept the mitzvah. You've done your religious duty. Now I ask one more thing of you. Give up everything. Re-identify yourself. Don't identify with who you used to be. Identify with me. Give everything away. Give it to the poor. And then Jesus answers the question, not in the way the man expected. He says, then there will be treasures for you in heaven. Jesus says to him in a kind of a snarky Jewish teaching way, then there'll be a point for you in heaven. He doesn't even promise him eternal life, even though that's what the question is really asking. Jesus, what good things must I do? Good teacher, what good things must I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, if you think you've got it all together, do the religious thing. You think you've accomplished the right standard of living through all the religious practices? Fine, re-identify yourself. Give away everything that you have and give it to the poor. Everything that gave you status, give it away, strip yourself naked and come follow me. And in that moment, you'll have a tick in your column in heaven and God will shine on you didn't even promise eternal life. In fact, it's so difficult for the man to understand that he walks away sad. And the Bible says because he had great wealth, he walked away sad. He couldn't seem to re-identify with how God was asking him to re-identify. He couldn't seem to re-identify with how Jesus was asking him to re-identify. He couldn't make the exchange to give something up so that he could gain something even greater. And in fact, it's so harsh the way Jesus answers the question that he says it's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a man, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you refuse to re-identify, it's very difficult for you and I to even see heaven. Jesus is such a pithy and sometimes sarcastic teacher. He's a rabbi. He's from that Jewish tradition. 
When he talks to people and he's trying to give them insight into the scriptures and insight into eternity, many times he, he frames a word picture that's kind of sarcastic. In one instance, when there's a spat going on, Jesus says, listen, how could you possibly look at the speck that's in your brother's eye and ignore the gigantic log that's sticking out of yours? Jesus was very good at painting these word pictures. Here he paints a word picture of a camel being forced through a needle. Doesn't matter if it's one hump or two, it's pretty impossible. Have a little sewing needle, you have a big camel, not gonna happen. In fact, Jesus goes on with his analogy and says, it is almost impossible for a rich person, someone who refuses to re-identify to find heaven. And these were the followers of Jesus. And he looks at them and says, it's gonna be even hard for you guys. In fact, Jesus goes farther and says, hmm, with man, this is impossible. On your own, left to yourself, you can't even do this. You can't do this. You can't make heaven on your own. But with God, all things are possible. But with God in the mix, all things are possible. His disciples are irritated by what he says. They literally look at him and say, what about us? How are we gonna fare in this? In fact, one of them, he's a smart aleck of the group. He speaks up. Peter speaks up and he says, Jesus, you can see his frustration as you read the story the three different times. You can see his frustration. Jesus, what about us? We've left everything for you. We left our homes. We left our kids. We left our jobs. We left it all. You said, come follow you. We put down our fishing nets and we made our way. We've come to you. Jesus says to him, this is where the story takes an incredible arc. This is where the story takes a hard right turn. Jesus says to him, if you've left anything, if you've left sister or brother or mother or father or children, if you've left any lands for the sake of the good news and for my sake, I will give it back to you a hundred times and your Bible might say in this age. And then he goes on to say, and in the age to come, or he says, I'll give back to you homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, lands with persecution. And in the age to come, you will have eternal life. Jesus uses this present age and the age to come. That's a, that's, a very specific word uh, picture that he's painting. It's a Jewish phrase uh, that's translated, or th that in, the, in, in Judaism is the Olam Haveh, or Heva, ha however you want to say it, Olam Haba. Olam Heva, Haveh, I'm sorry. Olam Haveh is this present age. Olam Haba is the age to come. It's a, it's a way that the Jewish people talk. It's the way that they kind of explain their thoughts. There's this age, this age is dark, this age is broken, it's sinful, this is the age that we live in. But in this age, I promise you, a hundred times return on anything you give up for me and for the gospel, I promise you a hundred times return. Not only that, but when we hit heaven, eternal life, the full blessing. Now, most of us, we kind of get it in a, in a, in a pictorial sense we get this idea that Jesus is saying that today, here and now, that we can have something of substance, that if we trade our, our brokenness, if we trade anything for God, if we trade our life for God, if we trade our family for God, if we trade our, our finances for God, if we trade anything that we have in this life for him in the gospel, then yes, we'll get back, but most of us don't understand the implication. Jesus is trying to paint a word picture and he's using a way the Jews taught in order to paint this picture. Now, just humor me for a second. If I had a ping pong, like they have in the back room, I've had a ping pong. We all understand what a ping pong is, a ping pong ball. It's soft, a little bit, not spongy, but it's got a little bounce to it. So that when you hit it with the paddle, it'll bounce back and bounce over the table. It's buoyant, it's buoyant. So if you drop it in water, it'll actually float. 
got air inside of it that helps it do what it does. In fact, we are so good with a ping pong and some folks are so good that they can hit it just the right way and put just the right spin on it that when it hits the table on the opposite side against their opponent, that it'll hit the table and spin in a direction that their opponent can't even think about returning the serve. We're so good with the physics of understanding a ping pong that we know when we can track exactly the spin and the rotation and the angle at which it's hit, we understand how all of this works. Yet if you take that same ping pong ball, you drop it in a vat of liquid nitrogen, it freezes instantly. It changes dynamic. Now that ball that, was, that could float will sink. And now that, that ball that was, you know, had that bounce to it, if you drop it, now it'll shatter like glass. The same thing is true when Jesus is talking about these two instances in the Hebrew. The Olam Hezah and the Olam Haba. The Olam Haba is the eternal life. The Olam Hezah is the life we live now. That when there is something that passes from eternity into reality, into today, into our substantive world, that it changes effect. That there's a blessing of God that's in heaven. There's something that he wants to get into us here now on planet earth. And that once it passes from eternity to here, that there's something about it that fundamentally changes. In fact, it's illustrated in the 613 laws that the Jewish people had to live by. The Jewish people understood that of the 613 laws that they lived by, the Bible says that God lived every single one of the laws that he wasn't deficient in any law. Yet one of the laws was kind of a quirky law. It said that we will not mix any fibers of wool and linen together, that our clothes can't have the mix of fibers of wool and linen. It was outlawed. How does that make sense in heaven when God's not a physical being? Does it really matter what his, what his garments are made out of? No, but it's a practical outworking of a holy nature of God being pushed through time, space, and eternity into a physical reality that we have within us, what Jesus is saying is that if you'll learn to re-identify, if you'll learn to give up who you are, even the good things about your life, if you'll learn to give that up for the sake of the gospel, that everything I have for you is a hundred times better here now and in this present age. That everything that I've carved out for you, that's a blessing that's waiting for you in heaven, I literally wanna force down through eternity and right now and get into your hand. That's why when he prays the Lord's prayer, Jesus says this, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. On earth, olam hezah, as it is in heaven, olam haba, olam haba, the eternal life as it is now. Jesus is on a mission and it's written throughout the gospels as a great exchange that we would value ourselves enough, that we would understand the value we have inside of us enough to take everything that's broken and dead in this life and give it to Christ and understand that the exchange is greater than we could possibly imagine. That there is literally a hundred times better what is waiting on the other side of what we will give up up for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Jesus. This is where we need to come to learn to re-identify. It's not an easy practice. It's not easy for us to learn to re-identify because many of us are like this young man and we come to Jesus and we're like, listen, Jesus, we've done it. We've done the religious thing. Look at God shining on us in the, in the, the, the first century Jewish context. When a man came and said that he fulfilled the law, he was saying he was a good Jew, which meant he was earning his way to heaven. He's earning merit badges on his way to heaven. And then to prove his point, God's shining on him. His family and he would be made of substance and of wealth. They would have some wealth about them. 
So to the disciples, they looked at a guy who was doing the law. He was doing the practices of a good Jew. And on top of that, it looked like God was shining on him because of his wealth. And then Jesus said, you're going to have a hard time making it to heaven. And they went, wait a minute. If he can't get in and he's doing all the religious things right, and it looks like God's shining on him, then what about us? We've already given up so much. What about us? We, we've given everything up and is it for nothing? And Jesus said, no, no, no. The exchange is what matters. You've given something up and I guarantee you that in this life, you will have a hundred times over everything that you give up for the gospel. But most of us give up like this. Go ahead and take this, Corey, for me. Most of us give up like this. We put in God's hand, we don't really let go. I mean, he's got it, but we, you know, he pulls on it but we just kind of take hold of it a little bit. We keep a firm grip on it, whatever it is. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's money when you, when you tithe and when you give and you give it to the work of the kingdom, but you don't really let go. You're, you're still focused on your budget way more than you should be because you can't see how God's gonna do what he's going to do. And there's, there's, a, there's a principle in financial planning. That's not what I'm talking about. But where God has called us to do something, we give it over to him, but we don't really let go. We, we watch over it too much. We, we put our eyes on it too much. We're too focused on what should be dead and gone. There's an exchange that happens that when we give it to Christ, it is multiplied back to our life a hundred times over that literally what is given to him is our old dead existence. There's nothing in us. There's nothing in us that isn't dead compared to the life we have in Christ. And that if we hold on to it, we're holding on to something that's dying and decaying. But if we'll give it up, that literally what he has for us in heaven will transpose from heaven and eternity into our life here and now. And it will create huge and massive waves in our life. And you might be saying, but pastor, come on, these men all died martyrs. These men all died martyrs. Jesus said they would return. They would be returned back to them a hundred times what they'd given up. They had given up lands. They had given up family. This has to be in just some eternal sense. This isn't talking specifics or reality. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 18 and verse 34. Luke 18 is the exact account of the story that we read, except each story in the gospels ends a little differently. And Luke 18 and 34 happens to end a little differently for the disciples than many of us maybe anticipate. Verse 34, after he gets done talking about how he's going to be taken, eventually imprisoned, and then he would be murdered on that tree, it says, however, they understood none of this. Its meanings had been hidden from them, and they had no idea what he was talking about. The they there is the disciples, the conversation that he's happened. The person who's being explained about is Jesus. They had no idea what Jesus was talking about. Now, there are some scholars that would point that to the idea that Jesus would eventually be arrested, and they he would be crucified and beaten and purged. But the, the fact is the disciples knew exactly that could happen to Jesus. They knew that when Jesus said that he was the son of God, he was coming against Jewish right and rule and he was coming against Roman right and rule and that any moment in time that he could be taken away, imprisoned, beaten, and even ultimately killed. They knew that the way he was talking was totally against the government, it was totally against the religious system. They knew there would be heavy consequences. It had nothing, that their blindedness had nothing to do with the idea that Jesus would, was prophesying his eventual demise. It had everything to do with the exchange. They were blinded to the fact it was hidden from them and it's been revealed for us that there's an exchange that happens. I believe it was hidden from them because the early church 
had to go through some stuff in order for it to catch on like wildfire. The persecution that was prophesied about had to happen and it happened through those early church leaders. And they gave up so much so that we could have such a great reward. In fact, I believe that it's been, the scriptures like this have been hidden over time so that in a certain generation, we would come to a full understanding so that we could come to a place so that we could look to God and say, I'm making an exchange. Everything in my life that's dead, I'm giving to you. Everything in my life that's broken, old and disgusting, I'm giving it to you. Everything in this life, I'm giving it to you because the exchange is a hundred times what I could possibly give away here now in this present age. You're taking something from heaven, a blessing from heaven and pushing it through time, space and eternity and plopping it into my hands. But most of us don't see our own intrinsic value enough to even receive it, let alone jump in the process. Most of us don't even see how we're crowned with glory and honor or dignity and worth enough to say, God, I'll take you up on that bet. I'll take that exchange. That's why most of us hold on to something that's dying and decaying. The life that we have, that we've lived in our own, we refuse to crucify it, put it on the cross and give it to Jesus. We hold on to it because we're afraid that this is all we have. It's all we're ever going to get. South America, they have this process of harvesting monkeys and they harvest them for many different things, for their pelts, for their bones, sometimes to even eat. And these indigenous people build these little boxes. Sometimes it's a hollowed out piece of like a coconut and they hollow it out and they put a hole in it that's big enough for the monkey to get his little hand in. And inside that hollowed out box, that, that hollowed out trap is a piece of dead and rotting fruit. They secure this little hollowed out box to a tree or to the ground. They secure it very, very securely. The monkey puts his little hand in, he grabs the fruit, he creates a fist and he can't pull his hand back out. Now he knows the fruit's in there. He can smell it, it's dead and it's dying. He can feel it in his hand, but he won't let go. He can literally see the, the harvester, the hunter coming for him. He'll jump and he'll scream. He'll make all kinds of noise, but he won't let go of that thing that's dead a thing that's dying. He won't exchange what's dead and dying for the possibility of life that he could have so he gets captured and caught. How many of us are in that same place? We won't let go. Because we won't let go, we stay stuck and trapped. We won't make the exchange for what God has for us and he promises that everything that he has for us that if we'll give it up is a hundred times better than anything we could receive on our own. Anything that we could build on our own, anything that we could come to on our own merit, he promises it's a hundred times better if you'll just. Olam Habab, coming to earth, being forced into the Olam Heza, coming into this present age that the good nature and the goodness of God wants to force itself through time, space, and eternity into this present age, even into the darkness, even into the brokenness and sin-stained world that we live in. His joy, his peace, his acceptance, his love, his prosperity, he wants to force it through time and space, change its nature so that it lands in our hands, lands in our lap. It's literally in heaven just called the blessing of God, but here on earth it comes in many facets and it rains down on us. Health, prosperity in our finances, in our jobs, health in our relationships, broken hearts that are mended, spousal relationships that are put back together, 
Kids where you, you've been estranged from them and, and, and now they, they come to you and they run to you and they have a relationship with you. All of the broken things that this life will put in front of you, if we'll give it to Jesus, he will put back into our life here now in this present age, a hundred times more, a hundred times over, a hundred times better. But we are so unwilling to let go. We are so unwilling to take what is dead and broken and decaying and give it to him. And because of that, we get trapped. And sometimes we even see in the distance the hunter that's coming for us and we are trapped and we are screaming and we are crying out. He's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And the whole time Jesus is saying, let go, let go. Give it over to me. You think it's worth something. You think it's valuable. You think it's what you need. You think it's what'll get you by. You think it's what's for you here and now. But if you'll let it go, what I have for you on the other side is much greater. How do we answer this question? What is man that you're mindful of him? How do we answer this question? Good teacher, how do we, what good things do we do to obtain eternal life? How do we answer this fundamental question? It's not a question, it's the question. How do we answer the question of life? Learning to let go. The number one way we answer that question, how do I obtain eternal life? Let go. Dude, frozen, hit it on the head. Let it go. Song's gonna be burning in your head all day, I don't care. Let it go. Every time you hear it, you should hear this sermon. I gotta let go. Every time your four-year-old starts to sing it in the car, man, I gotta let it go. I've got to let go. What in, what in my life, Jesus, have I not exchanged? Is there a relationship that I need to learn to let go of? And I don't mean this. I don't mean give it to Jesus and hold on to it. Say, God, I, I, I'll let go when I see something happen. I'll let go when something tangibly starts to take place. I'll let go, God, when I finally feel better. I'll let go, God, when my bank account finally starts to change. I'll let go, God, when they make that first text message or that first phone call, then I'll let go. no. Let go, exchange, put it in his hands, walk away, it's not mine anymore. Follow him with everything that you have. Re-identify as a disciple of Christ. Re-identify as one who follows Jesus, not that same old dead person. But what happens in the characteristics of our life is this. We have those, maybe you've, been, you've, been, you've walked out of a lifestyle of alcoholism. You know, you, you had that first beer, it made you feel good. You had that second beer, now you're chatting people up. You had that fifth beer and you are Superman. You could do anything. They'd get you to jump off any roof in the city. As long as there was a puddle of water, you'd try it. And what happens is that goes away. We give it up, but we never make the exchange. Some of us really don't give it up. What we do is we hold on to it and we, 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 we actually fondly think of those memories. Remember when I used to get drunk? Man, that was fun. Man, remember when I used to just drink too much and all the fun things we did and you laugh and you goof about it, you never really give it up. It's still part in your hand. You haven't, you haven't let go to the point that you've forgotten about it, that you've said it's not me anymore, that I'm a different person. There's still that, that wandering inside your heart and your head. What if I get one beer? Will I still feel as good? What if I, I give two beers? Will I still act the same? And there's the wondering in our spirit because we haven't really let go. The letting go says, no, that was dead and gone. That man is dead. That man is gone. He doesn't even exist anymore. I'm not the same person I was. 
Not that your testimony doesn't matter, but you've learned to let go. And the joy and the excitement and the courage and everything you felt while you were drinking, God will give you a hundred times over if you'll learn to let go. The friendship and camaraderie you found around a bar, you will find around the cross a hundred times over if you'll learn to let go. This idea that we are crowned with glory, honor, dignity, and worth starts as we learn to look at the patterns of our life and let go of what's dead and transition those to the life that we have in Christ. I, I'm, this morning, I might've gotten a little deep on some of you, maybe use some language that we're not used to, some of these Hebrew words. Maybe had to explain myself a little more than I'd like to, but it comes down to this very simple point. What Jesus has for you is a hundred times better. Financially, emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally, everything that he has over here is better. Nothing is worth worse today, here and now. Our responsibility is to understand the values assessment. Is what I have worth trading? Is what I have worth giving up? This young man came to Jesus and said, good teacher, what good things must I do in order to inherit the kingdom? And Jesus gave him his answer, the answer he expected. And he added a little bit to it and said, until you make a real exchange, you're not getting anything out of this kingdom. Until you make an honest to goodness exchange, you're not getting anything. And then Jesus tells his followers, it's just as hard for you. And he explains to them, without God, you couldn't do it. The Bible literally says it this way, can a leopard change its spots? And the answer is obviously, no, you can't. If you're a leopard, you have your spots, they are what they are. Yet the Bible says that with God, those spots can be rearranged, rechanged, changed over 17 different times. In fact, the way he can repattern your life is a hundred times better if we'll learn to give up and to let go. The fact is the Christian life this idea of understanding our dignity and worth, our glory and honor starts when we say, Jesus, I've had enough of myself. Most of us don't need to be saved from hell. Most of us don't need to be saved from our past sin. Most of us need to be saved from the present image of who we are. Most of us need to be saved from who we are in our heart, the way we see ourselves, the way we talk about ourselves, the way we judge ourselves the patterns of life that have, that have crippled us, the self that we keep trying to bolster and put up on a pedestal needs to be knocked down and exchanged for the life that we can have in Christ. I wanna encourage you this morning, learn to make the exchange. Learn to give it over to Jesus and say, this is it, I'm done, I'm done. Jesus, take it, I'm done. Learn to come to a place where you say, God, it's all for you, nothing for me. God, I'm gonna take this exchange, and I'm gonna expect that on the backside, it's a hundred times better, whatever I give over to you. It's a hundred times growth, whatever I give over to you. It's a hundred times the expectation, whatever I give over to you. Most of us can't even think of terms of 5% better, let alone a hundred times better. This is the dignity and worth that each of us share, that we have a right to live in this space, that we trade who we are for who we can be in Christ.